welcome to the ABI podcast. This is Melissa Jacoby. I'm a law professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and I'm also the resident scholar for the ABI for the spring of 2016. So today we're going to be focusing on government debt crises with a special focus on the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. So we're recording this podcast on February 4th when there is a particularly large amount of Puerto Rico news. So first, we now have a date for the Supreme Court to consider whether federal bankruptcy law preempts Puerto Rico's Recovery Act. That's going to be on March 22nd. Now, had that act been upheld so far, it would have imposed a bankruptcy-like regime for some public instrumentalities of the Commonwealth, including the electric company, PREPA. So far, both the District Court and the First Circuit have held that the Bankruptcy Code preempts Puerto Rico's law. Now, on February 2nd, we had another congressional hearing, one in a very long line of discussions of the Puerto Rico crisis, but not necessarily any action. Also this week, Puerto Rico government released details of a proposed voluntary restructuring applicable to about $50 billion of the debt and contemplating some very big haircuts for bondholders and includes some startling figures in the restructuring materials uh, that show the financing gap over time, at least as alleged by Puerto Rico. And then, if that were not enough, Puerto Rico is also in federal court in a trial with Walmart. Now, this is a tax law issue, not directly on our plate, but it is relevant to us here to some extent because there's testimony of the head of the Government Development Bank of Puerto Rico as well as other parties that talk about the financial state of Puerto Rico. And some of the disclosures that are coming out of that trial are going to be relevant to the restructuring. So, In this environment, I am very excited to have these two guests today. They are thought leaders in the academic world. But beyond that, they've been very involved in managing sovereign debt crises around the globe. And in general, that's when a restructuring has to be achieved without a mandatory bankruptcy law to which we've become accustomed in domestic U.S. bankruptcy law as well as for municipalities. So introducing them in alphabetical order, we'll start with Anna Gelpern. She is a professor at Georgetown Law Center, as well as a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. And she's formerly at the Treasury Department uh, in both legal and policy positions. You have probably seen her cited about Argentina and many other sovereign debt crises around the world. Then we have Mitu Gulati, a professor at Duke Law School. Now, according to the New York Times, uh, Professor Gulati was one of the architects of the Greek debt restructuring in 2012. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. We're going to start with Puerto Rico. Let me start with you, Professor Gelpern. Some chafe at comparisons between Puerto Rico and any national debt crisis, whether it's Argentina or Greece or Ukraine. So what is your pitch that these experiences are relevant to developing a feasible solution in Puerto Rico? Um, I actually tend to believe that the comparisons are overwrought. Um, I think that in many ways, Puerto Rico is more interesting for the sovereign world than the sovereign world for Puerto Rico, because um, in Puerto Rico, you have a real pre-cooked, institutionally um, tested uh, and very articulated statutory option. Um, You also have a very old functioning fiscal and monetary union so that um, this idea that Puerto Rico is our Greece is, um, I think it had some purchase 
for a few weeks, but I think that at this point it's probably obscuring more than it's uh, revealing. That said, um, I think that uh, the uh, many of the things that are happening uh, in Puerto Rico and the interactions between Puerto Rico's creditors and the government uh, would seem incredibly familiar to anyone who's seen one or two sovereign debt crises. Um, and they seem to be shocking and surprising to folks who are more used to the muni market. So the fact that you're dealing with debt um, whose enforcement and priority structure uh, is a, one big cloud of doubt, all right? I mean, there's not a single... Uh, category of debt in Puerto Rico's 70-plus billion stock that is enforceable in a clear, straightforward way. Uh, you also have a debtor that is um, that has uh, told multiple groups of creditors that they're the favorite children um, and was able to borrow up a storm um, with that strategy. And then now they, like most creditors of sovereigns, are discovering that, well, you know, maybe those promises were not solid as they might have seemed. So, therefore, if the statutory regime doesn't work, um, then the contractual options that have been the mainstay of the sovereign world might become salient. Um, but I think that's uh, really down the line, frankly. So let me pose a similar question to you, Professor Galati. You and Professor Gilpern just had an amazing conference uh, with the hashtag DebtCon1, I believe. Uh, Go DebtCon1. That's right. We're going to keep, uh, keep, keep that sign going. Uh, but you brought people from around the world together to talk about sovereign debt, and one of the things they most wanted to talk about, in addition to many of the other crises, is Puerto Rico. So, Professor Galati, how do you persuade skeptics uh, that the lessons from Greece extend to the uh, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, part of the U.S. Certainly, this group was interested in having those discussions. I think, I mean, Puerto Rico in many ways is one of the most exciting debt crises in the government sphere. And it's exciting both because of its similarities to other countries, but as Anna had pointed out, also because it's in some ways, so much more complicated. And it's so much more complicated, probably for a variety of reasons, but one of the outcomes of the complexity is that Puerto Rico has more different kinds of debt instruments with ambiguous levels of priority and conflicting promises than any sovereign entity in the last... I don't know, thousand years. So from the perspective of somebody who wants to study this, it's, it's um, so exciting because we have to figure out how they're going to work this out. They have a huge debt stock, especially compared to their ability to pay it. I think that the, the deal that they have proposed, even though it's a massive haircut, is still not enough to get mm. them out of trouble. Realistically, they're going to be back in crisis quite soon if they continue, if their economy continues to go in the way that they do, they are going currently. But to get finally back to the question that you asked most directly, for me, the the part about the Puerto Rican debt crisis that, in some ways, has been befuddling is 
Puerto Rico's unwillingness to take advantage of the fact that pretty much all of its debt stock, all of that $70 billion is under its own local laws. And Greece took advantage of that to devastating effect. Now, there are slightly different legal regimes that are applicable in the context of Puerto Rico, but that's what lawyers are paid the big bucks to do, to navigate it. But the bottom line is Puerto Rico has a huge advantage as compared to most sovereigns and, for example, Venezuela, and it hasn't really figured out how to take advantage of it. And that's, if I were a Puerto Rican taxpayer, I'd be very pissed off at my government. So let's go back to the restructuring proposal, and then I want to get into those the, the contracting issues under Puerto Rico law in a bit. So in, in this proposal, so uh, Mitu just suggested that it doesn't cut enough. Uh, and yet I suspect that creditors are hardly jumping for joy over this proposal. Now, it isn't quite as extreme as Detroit's initial proposal for creditors in 2013. Detroit ended up paying or promising to pay most of its creditors more. But uh, so, Mitu, what do you make of this proposal and its timing? What, what features of it stand out to you? You've mentioned one, that it doesn't cut enough. Uh, and over time, it will probably cut less. So what do you make of it? Well, the the biggest flaw that I see in it is that uh, there's a good part and the bad part. The the let me start with the bad part, the really bad part. I think that smart creditors, and I think that there are a lot of smart creditors out there holding Puerto Rican debt. Smart creditors will recognize that a they're in the United States, so they have legal claims and legal claims that they can exercise meaningfully. So unless there is the hammer that's held to their heads that forces them to take a bad deal. They're going to wait that everybody else take the bad deal and then wait until Puerto Rico has a little more money and can pay all of them in full. So if everybody makes that calculation, then Puerto Rico's not going to get anybody to get into their deal. Now, maybe they can twist the arms of certain big institutions to get into the deal, but I see this as not doing anything to solve the holdout problem. So, and that holdout problem, given the types of institutions that are holding Puerto Rican debt, is going to be a big one. Now, on the positive side, and this is really something uh, Anna can explain better, I think there is, there is a silver lining in the deal that they've made in that they have taken advantage of the legal ambiguity. So right now, the situation is Puerto Rico has these 21 different types of debt instruments out there, and nobody knows really which one should be first and which one second, which one third. So the Puerto Rican, the offer that they have on the table, in a sense, says, look, we're going to make it clear for you. Make it clear among all the people who take this deal, some of you will be first, some of you will be second. And Clarity, typically, in markets has a value. So to the extent you think people want the clarity, maybe there's some value. But I don't know, and I'd be actually curious as to what you and Anna think about how much they can buy with the clarity without having any mechanism to solve the holdout problem. Well, yes, and I, I, I agree with you that they still have the fundamental difficulty of not having the hammer. Uh, and I didn't see, Anna, I'd be curious about your view, I, I didn't we were told in the proposal that the things would become more clear, but the proposal itself I didn't see as necessarily making those priorities clear and what the promises were. Did you see it differently, Anna? 
Well, I saw them as offering a much more uh, homogeneous uh, mix of dead instruments uh, to a very ragged and confused group of creditors. Um, so I think that alone is clarity. Um, and then the priority is going to be in the recovery values for each of these groups, uh, which are going to get a different mix of these two kinds of instruments, the base bonds and the growth bonds. And this is, you know, of course, taking the uh, offer such as it is on, on its, you know, at face value. I think that rather than looking at Detroit, um, and this, I guess, contradicts what I said earlier, I think that folks would be well advised to look at Russia, um, where in the late 90s, first of all, going back to Mitu's initial point, the holders of the debt got, oh, five cents on the dollar, and a good long time after they had originally uh, expected paid. But even that aside, um, creditors were holding obligations of uh, agency, um, which became an empty shell, um, and therefore was essentially um, the debt became uncollectible. And then what they were offered in exchange was, well, if you hand in your hundred cent claim on this empty shell of a state-owned entity or a state agency, you can get a deeply haircutted. Uh, claim on an entity that you know will survive, namely the sovereign, the government itself, right? So if you hold um, even secured claims on uh, state uh, instrumentalities, uh, you may well do better, or that I think is the premise of the structure, um, by accepting a claim on the Commonwealth itself, even though much of that claim is subordinated. By the way, subordinated in a very fashionable way. These growth-linked bonds are uh, are all the rage these days and uh, are becoming um, de rigueur in sovereign restructurings. Um, now, that said, and going back to the domestic debt uh, point that Me Too made and, and also, of course, the Russia analogy, um, here, I think Greece comes in handy, right? There's a reason why Greece did not uh, follow the structuring path that, that uh, Me Too and Lee Bukite articulated in uh, May 2010 and that they ultimately followed to the T in the spring of 2012. And that is Greece was not free to make its own decisions, right? Greece was part of a monetary union, uh, if not a fiscal union. It was part of a po bigger political unit that um, had uh, a lot of say in its decisions uh, and could certainly veto a decision like a decision to haircut your creditors by 99% uh, yeah, with domestic law if you wanted to remain as part of that political unit. Right. With Puerto Rico, not only is it part of the overall political uh, and fiscal and monetary union, it's getting an enormous amount of its national income from transfers, from fiscal transfers from, from the United States. Right. So it depends on the U.S. Congress not just for ongoing revenues and, by the way, going back to what Nietzsche said on any um, legislation to cram down uh, holdouts, uh, but also, obviously, with that in mind, it's, uh, it, it, uh, it cannot 
make unilateral decisions of the sort that we might want to see it make if we wanted deep relief. So let's go back to this question of the hammer again, where, where we could get it. So in terms of the institutions that can help fix the problem. And again, I don't think anybody believes this comes up so much in the, the hearing testimony and elsewhere that a bankrupt, bankruptcy-like regime is the whole problem. So I don't see anybody as, as saying that there's going to be new oversight and reform. There have to be examination of other the other laws, the health care reform or finance reform and the like. But let's take that as a given. Um, now, so we have to look at both the federal level and the, at Puerto Rico's own law. So I want to take up with Me Too again this idea of what Puerto Rico itself can do about its own debts. Now, some assume that Puerto Rico has its hands tied in part because of the ruling we already have on the Recovery Act. So, uh, Me Too, you, you, I think you take a different view. Uh, so could you explain how you think Puerto Rico can clarify its contract law to impose something that would functionally achieve an involuntary restructuring against some of its creditors, but it doesn't fall into the same preemption trap as the Recovery Act. Okay, so I'll, I'll take a stab at it, and then you, you guys, um, both of whom know a lot more about federal bankruptcy law than I do, maybe can tell me um, how to do it better. I, I'm not going to say why I'm wrong, because I think there is a path to do this. So if you... The Recovery Act, I think the First Circuit and the District Court correctly said, uh, you know, was preempted by federal law. And I agree with you on that. But there is a way in which, especially if one goes to the post-Depression era cases, there, is a, there, there are ways in which states, so long as they are not trying to just expropriate from creditors, are allowed to manage their own finances. And here we have a commonwealth, it's not a state. And surely, and this is my view, surely, if so long as the commonwealth is not trying to expropriate, but instead is trying to manage its laws in a way in which it's enabling its creditors to coordinate themselves to do a workout with the state, a workout that will benefit everybody, Surely it is permitted by federal law to do that. So that's, that's my position. And once you concede that, then it's just a matter of the lawyers working out the precise details of doing that. Now, I think that doing precisely what Greece did, sort of the imposing collective action clauses, which is, for those of those who don't know, it's just a con contractual provision that says, in a very simplistic fashion, 75% of the creditors can vote to cram down the remain remainder of the creditors. That may be too close to putting in place something that looks like a prescribed bankruptcy provision. To the extent one thinks that, and even that's not clear, it's not clear that that would be prohibited, but to the extent one thinks that, Puerto Rico surely has the ability and the right to specify what its contract law is on matters such as best efforts or good faith and how it thinks that people who choose to 
operate under Puerto Rican domestic contract law should behave vis-a-vis each other. So Puerto Rico, can, Puerto Rico can say to people who have chosen Puerto Rican law, look, you have to behave yourselves. You can't do nasty things to each other. And they can say that emphatically in this particular context. And once you have that, then that would give the court leeway to at least help along a restructuring in a fashion that does not basically feed the hedge funds from Connecticut uh, a disproportionate share of what little funds Puerto Rico has left. So uh, for, for the audience, I will say that, uh, that Professor Gulati and Bob Rasmussen, uh, professor at USC, had a proposal in uh, the Financial Times Alphaville blog a couple weeks ago that that lays out this idea of it being a contract interpretation issue. If we move this up to looking at the, at the federal law, clearly the U.S. Congress is incredibly central here. They are the ones that can offer the bankruptcy or the bankruptcy-like law, whether it's through the bankruptcy clause, whether it's through their power over territories. There are a lot of bills pending. Nothing seems to ha- be happening. We are promised that something will happen by March, but we don't know. So in the meantime, Treasury has been active, it seems. There have been various trips to Puerto Rico. Uh, There have been various position papers released. Uh, Anna, you have experience there. Can you tell us what you think the role of Treasury can be in this situation, given that we're not, we're dealing with the Commonwealth and not another sovereign nation? What's the role? Um, well, so I think I, I should, and boy, it's been decades, but, you know, I better I better disclaim, I have no idea what the Treasury is doing, and of nothing course. I say should be taken as any indication of what they're thinking. Um, but I think that uh, the concern here uh, is uh, in some ways of the same variety as I've expressed earlier. Um can you know the Treasury or the Fed tap a magic slush fund and uh, you know throw a few billion dollars at Puerto Rico? Um, you know, all, all else absent, maybe who knows? Um, but that is so emphatically not where they are, um, and that is so emphatically um, a kind uh, of last resort. Uh, enhancing a restructuring that's already on the table uh, sort of move that I think that it's it's really just pointless to uh, consider it actively just now. Um, however, um, I think that uh, you know, the Treasury certainly has a policy interest in municipal debt markets, um, Although even that is somewhat attenuated because Puerto Rico does not seem to be um, seen by anybody as systemic, right? So it is politically important, and that's systemic in its own way. But as far as um, uh, so, it's really a domestic uh, economic policy issue more than financial market stability issue, which I think. Um, points to a very different set of priorities, including reforms and fiscal transfers and, uh, you know, kind of a much more, um, uh, much more of a uh, uh, restructuring in the grand sense um, view of the problem rather than a 
um, fixing the debt flow. Um, now, going back, I find going back to Meetus um, uh, and Bob's proposal, I find it really intriguing, but I also think it ties in with this question of whether Puerto Rico is sui generis or uh, potentially um, carries implications for the U.S. municipal market. Right. So. Uh, in treasuries and other legislative proposals that have been floated, folks have bent backwards to say, look, this is just for territories, which really just means it's just for Puerto Rico because it is a multiple of all the other territories combined. Um, it is, there's been sufficient noise and there are also sufficient facts out there to say that, well, Puerto Rico is really quite different from Illinois or Detroit or California. Um, however, when you're talking about domestic law, um, clarifying the concept of good faith uh, in general uh, to uh, enable or to create certain intercreditor duties, let's say, or to enable a debt restructuring, then I think you are talking about something that is replicable. And moreover, with Puerto Rico, it might need to be very directly replicable because it has that big New York law bond that was uh, supposed to be structurally senior to the rest of the debt stock, right? So you're potentially ending up in a situation a little bit like Ukraine, where um, a subset of creditors uh, is operating uh, under a very different set of constraints and in a very different legal regime, namely New York law which would not be bound by this um, uh, kind of articulation of good faith. And I think that that raises a lot of really interesting uh, issues as far as the U.S. muni market is concerned and ones that could rise to the policy level. And does that make it more likely <laughs> that we can get to a solution quickly or less likely, do you think? Oh, less likely. The fact, the, the potential replicability or the, and the broader yeah. ripple effects. Oh, goodness, less. I mean, if you look at actually, and this is, again, Why gosh, not more? It's so exciting. We could have everybody do it. No, it's more for us, dear, but it's not more for, so look at the Illinois, pattern. Illinois is so, looking for a, a, a path out. You're just basically saying, goodness gracious people, you know, run for the hills, right? Now, again, this is this is a big advantage of legislation. It comes out up front and says, you know, look, folks, um, this is for everybody, and this is how it goes, right? With contracts, what's yeah. been fascinating about the sovereign world is everybody is unique, right? It is laughable. Both debtors and creditors, you know, come out with straight faces every couple of years and say, you know, Argentina is unique, Greece is unique, Ukraine is unique, <laughs> Ruritania is unique, you know, my uncle is unique, right? All my children are unique. All their pets are unique. I mean, this is ludicrous, right? In some sense, all public debt is unique because there are only so many public debt issuing units in the world um, and even in the United States. There's also the cultural overlay to each situation that is not directly applicable across the board. Exactly, right? But at the same time, investors buy some debt as proxy for some risks, and some is interchangeable and some is not, right? And um, and so I think that, uh, you know, in, in a weird, dysfunctional and disingenuous way, the near-term success of any sovereign debt restructuring 
depends on maintaining this fiction of uniqueness, right? So if you can sustain it for like the 20 minutes it takes you to restructure, then you can go back and then Mito and I take over and then, you know, we say, well, of course, it's, you know, great precedence for, precedent for everybody. Otherwise known as moral hazard, as the, as the market uh, proponents would say. Right, bada-bing, exactly, right? So then, you know, if the more you're proposing something that looks like, well, you know, tomorrow, you know, today it's Puerto Rico, tomorrow's Illinois, the more um, you're alerting, uh, uh, the more constituencies you're alerting um, that might uh, object to this. Now, analytically, structurally, I think it's fabulous. I think it is great, Right. I think that the problem across the board is political economy. So in light of all of these challenges, we have uh, one of the, uh, as you've laid out, an extraordinarily thorny set of priority questions, which there may be no straightforward legal answer to. In fact, I doubt there is. We have a huge amount of debt. We have a lot of different kinds of reforms uh, in a context that people for rightly or wrongly resist uh, making analogies across the board. Based on your experience with other government debt crises, how close do you think we are to some sort of resolution for Puerto Rico? I'll turn to Me Too first. Well, I, I mean, they, they've already delayed it far too long, Is this, and they're costing every... Every six months they delay and they pay creditors out in full. I mean, they've started now not paying some creditors, but they're still paying a great deal of their debt, costing their taxpayers money. And unfortunately, this aspect of what Puerto Rico has been doing for the last few years is very much like many very bad sovereign debt crises where they just delay, 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 cost the public a lot of money, and then eventually that the point at which they restructure, the only people left to be dealing with on the restructuring are savvy creditors because all the dumb creditors have left. And I just fear that, I mean, we're going to have to have resolution because Puerto Rico just doesn't have the money and because I think the federal government is fairly clear that they're not going to give them the money. So either through Congress or through the Puerto Rican local legislature, we're going to have a solution. But I... It's just befuddled me why they're delaying so long. Anna? We're at stage three of seven stages of grief. You know, we're yeah. sort of, we're not even at stage three, actually. So, you know, we're, I think, over the disbelief. We've been over the disbelief. We're kind of, you know, getting past denial. We're entering into bargaining. But, you know, we still have guilt, anger, depression, and acceptance to go. So I think that... Uh, um, this is uh, a good long way away. And uh, I think me too, I pointed out um, something very important, which is that, you know, in the sovereign world, there's been this very active debate about too little, too late. So that sovereigns restructure much too late and that they get uh, insufficient relief, which is why they keep coming back to the restructuring table. And that's an issue in in corporate bankruptcy uh, and restructuring as well, by the way, for sure. Which is really important. And one of the, you know, if anybody who has uh, research bandwidth is listening, I think that this is something, the comparability, the way to figure out how to compare kind of corporate 
um, restructuring timelines and recidivism with sovereign um, would be um, adding great value. Uh, but, you know, the question, so why are we doing this? Right? Why is it that it's too little too late? I and mean, Nietzsche is exactly right. It's sort of been clear as day that this was, that this train was coming. And yet either everybody just thought they would get off or that, you know, somehow the train would make a turn and end up in Wonderland. I'm really not so sure. Is it because of the domestic political reluctance to deal with these issues? But with Puerto Rico, there aren't the usual factors of, you know, falling currency and banking system. Right, so that's why very often um, sovereign governments are reluctant to pull the trigger because they're worried about bank runs and currency collapses. Here you've had a slow hemorrhage of the population, um, and delay isn't really helping anybody. So I'm, I'm sort of flummoxed about that. Um, as far as creditors go, well, again, I mean, why would anybody insist on New York law and uh, collect interest rates that are multiple of other parts of, of the uni universe if you didn't think there was any risk. So there's nothing unexpected about this. And yet, here we are. So speaking of fallen currency, I want to use this opportunity to uh, do a little bit of a lightning round on some other crises in the world uh, that I think more of us should be paying attention to. Uh, and Venezuela is one that, that certainly comes to mind. Uh, so uh, I would ask both of you, Mito, I'll start with you. What 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 should people know about the the crisis in Venezuela? Well, the, the, I mean, it's a lot simpler than Puerto Rico uh, in that they don't have 21 different kinds of bonds, although it's remarkable that Venezuela has a multiplicity of different bonds with different voting thresholds for the creditors to deal with, something that we don't usually see. So I think Venezuela has one bond that requires 100% approval of the creditors for a restructuring, another that at least another couple that require 85%, and then some that require 75%. And so Venezuela has sort of a mini version of the Puerto Rico problem of dealing with these different classes of creditors. But Venezuela, believe it or not, is even in even worse financial condition than Puerto Rico in that they don't have the U.S. federal government. They're sort of you know, in somewhat of a benevolent position to do transfers, they've lost all their friends. And their biggest friends, friend used to be the price of oil. And that is not their friend anymore. So Venezuela should have restructured again at least a year ago, but probably before that. And they are, again, wasting taxpayer money and paying making creditors rich. I, it's just, again, you would think in a socialist country they would not be doing this. Anna, you see it differently? Um, no, well, here's, uh, here's what I find fascinating, and this is, Mito's exactly right. They, they, on the one hand, have a much simpler debt stock than um, Puerto Rico, but um, there is uh, complexity under the surface, um, which is very typical of sovereigns, so forth. Uh, and that is, they have been getting um, basically emergency liquidity from China um, for some time now. So, if they, so China has been filling uh, most of Venezuela's financing gap uh, for the past couple of years, right? So you've got 
bonds, you've got loans, and then you've got this very interesting financing from uh, China, which is in the form of, a lot of it is in the form of um, advance uh, payment for oil sales, which you can imagine what that looks like in the current uh, environment and, uh, you know, what you would be willing to pay um, uh, upfront for oil delivery six months from now in this environment. And again, if you're China, especially, right? So how do you re- restructure that? So if the bonds, if tradable bonds are, let's say, a third of their overall stock, um, I'm hardly making it up, but not entirely. So let's say a third of their stock is bonds. Uh, a third of their stock is loans of various kinds, which don't have any of these you know, clauses in very different contractual environment. And then another third, probably growing, um, is uh, this liquidity support slash uh, sort of peculiar trade credits from China. Now, who takes the haircut in this world, and what is the process for aggregating all these kinds of all these claims? in a world of drastically, rapidly falling oil prices and um, a very uncertain growth forecast for all the protagonists. Um, I think this is going to be very, very complicated. I think within the bond stock, me too, is exactly right. There is this huge heterogeneity where you've got some bonds with no majority amendments, some bonds with, um, which, by the way, for a while at least, me too, I think we're trading... uh, uh, at a big uh, premium, actually, and a growing premium over bonds with no amendment clauses, which is also sort of interesting, um, on the assumption that they would be exempted from the restructuring, a little bit like this idea of a New York law bond with Puerto Rico, that they're, uh, uh, they, can, they can sit it out. Um, but if the bonds have to take all the losses, then, um, you know, it looks pretty grim for everybody. Uh, you know, and I cannot imagine that um, uh, China would uh, willingly uh, <laughs> take haircuts right, on this, you know, emergency advanced oil sale payment thingamajingums, you know, and where would this go? Into the pair squad? And I think that's a perfect place for us to end. So... Uh, thank you, Anna Gelpern. Thank you, Mitu Gulati, for this conversation and your candor and your time. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, thanks to the listeners of this podcast, and you will be hearing from me again soon. <laughs>